Greetings, everybody. Uh, it is now uh, 12 noon. <clears throat> so uh, I would like to uh, welcome you to uh, the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council program with guest speakers, Dr. Aaron Hayward, Adrian Silva, Lata DeMello, and Alyssa Clayton. Thanks to each of them and to everyone who has joined us online today. I am Peter Gerlach, Project Director for our program series on refugees and immigrants in Iowa. I'm also a member of ICFRC's board, and I'll be your host for today's program. We are grateful to Humanities Iowa and the National Endowment for the Humanities for their funding support for this project. We would also like to acknowledge and thank our other annual donors, sponsors, and partners for their support the Iowa Council through the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, the University of Iowa's International Programs, Honors Program, Public Policy Center, and Center for Human Rights, the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization, Midwest One Bank, and Channel City Four and the UI Library Archives. Before we begin, ICFRC would like to honor and recognize a longtime member and a good friend, Dave Tiffany, who died on January 30th. We extend our sympathy to his family and friends. On a personal note, uh, Dave and I served together on the civic board uh, and uh, his presence there and in the community more broadly is greatly missed. He was a genuinely good person uh, and someone who lived an intentionally minded, uh, an internationally minded, engaged life. As we get started, uh, I would like to cover some Zoom etiquette tips. Uh, this is the time to make sure you know where your video and audio mute and unmute buttons are located. Please keep your audio and video turned off for the duration of the presentation so that you do not interrupt uh, the speakers during their remarks. Following our speaker's presentations <clears throat> at about 1.15 p.m., we'll have about a 15-minute Q&A. You'll be able to submit your questions via the chat function. At that time, we invite you to turn on your video, but please keep your audio muted to avoid any background noise. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speakers uh, who will talk today about how COVID-19 has impacted refugees and immigrants in Iowa. Dr. Aaron Hayward is a clinical assistant professor of family medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and the medical director of the International Family Medicine Clinic. Prior to obtaining a medical degree at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and completion of her family medicine residency at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, Dr. Hayward completed an undergraduate degree in international relations at Kenyon College she has been employed by Lutheran World Relief and was involved at the inception of Tietian Health, now known as Last Mile Health, uh, organizations that are active across the continent of Africa in developing sustainable economic and healthcare models to promote health and bring rural Africans out of poverty. She served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal, West Africa, 
that's that's fabulous. I too served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Mongolia. Uh, Dr. Hayward practices outpatient family medicine at the Scott Boulevard Clinic of UICOM and is a rotating faculty member on the family medicine inpatient service at UIHC. She currently serves on the board of the Congolese Health Partnership of Johnson County. Adrian Silva is the lead medical interpreter at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and Stead Family Children's Hospital. He has been interpreting for Spanish speaking patients and families for the last 11 years and as such has been in thousands of medical encounters spanning all aspects of patient care. Adrian's family moved to the United States from Mexico when he was eight years old, so he can closely relate to the struggles many of his patients deal with as limited English and non-English speakers. Throughout his career as a medical interpreter, he has experienced both the joy and wonders of medical care, the curing of a cancer, the birth of a healthy baby, as well as the saddest of circumstances for many patients and their loved ones. He comes to us today with a unique perspective as one of the only staff in a healthcare team that gets to see a patient's full scope of care from beginning to end. Lata DeMello is a director of programs at Monsoon Asians and Pacific Islanders in Solidarity, an organization serving victims and survivors of gender-based violence in Iowa. She is based in Iowa City and oversees victim services in the eastern, northeastern, and southern parts of the state, trains and supervises advocates, edits Monsoon's communication materials, and conducts outreach and education. Lata was born and raised in Mumbai, India. She has had about 22 years of experience as a journalist in newspapers in India, Singapore, and the United States. Her interests are social and economic justice, gender studies, community health, and arts and culture. Alyssa Clayton is a mental health therapist, community educator, and doctoral level researcher who specifically focus on decreasing mental health inequities in refugee and immigrant communities. Alyssa has more than two decades of professional experience living on five continents, supporting innovative curriculum and best practice interventions for displaced individuals, families, and communities. She runs her own community agency and supports refugee and immigrant mental health locally, nationally, and internationally through telehealth services. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Aaron Hayward, Adrian Silva, Lata DeMello, and Alyssa Clayton. Well, um, thank you again to each one of you. I'm so happy that you're here, uh, ready to engage in uh, what I think will be a really important conversation at a time when it seems, well, it doesn't seem, but I'm continually hearing how Omicron is touching everybody that I know. Uh, it's, 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 it's really coming close to all of us. So our conversation today is, is truly prescient. I would like to begin, um, as I always do, um, both in the course I teach with a, a similar title and in this series by asking each one of you uh, a simple question. We've sure heard your bios, yes, but uh, in a few sentences, would you share your migration story to Iowa with us? Uh, and Lata, maybe I'll begin with you. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Peter, and thank you to the my fellow panelists. Um, 
I came uh, to the United States uh, as a non-traditional grad student in 1996. And at that time I was 36 roughly. So you can calculate how old I will be now today. Uh, but uh, at that time uh, I was familiar with the United States because I had traveled uh, around the country a couple of several times actually. Um, uh, but coming to Iowa, was the first time and I was in Cedar Falls for two years before I actually came to do as an international student my optional practical training for those who don't know what that is it's international students have a year of um, working in a field that is related to their studies and then I ended up moving to Des Moines working at the newspaper there uh, until I joined the organization I'm at. So that's been the course of my uh, being here in Iowa and then continuing to stay here. I moved back, to, I mean, moved, I guess it's back to Iowa City after living in Des Moines for 17 years. Um, so I was here, I moved here uh, in 2017 where I have been since then. I work out of the, the uh, monsoon office in uh, Iowa City. Um, so that's been my experience being in Iowa or in the United States since 1996. Thank you, Lana. Uh, Alyssa, I'll, I'll turn to you next. What is your migration story to Iowa? My migration story actually starts in Iowa. So I am originally Iowa born and raised, and um, I left Iowa for um, about 20 years, a few stints back and forth uh, to see family or for practical reasons um, and lived overseas um, and then brought my household back to Iowa in 2016. Um, my household is an immigrant household and so it was an opportunity for everybody in the household to get to know Iowa a little bit better um, after we'd been to many different places that they had already started to integrate into their lives. Fabulous, thank you. Uh, Aaron? This is the, the very first time I've ever been asked to share my migration story from the great state of Ohio. Um, so uh, thank you for asking. Uh, I, I lived in Ohio for much of my life, attending college there um, and and um, moved briefly to, um, to Baltimore where I thought I was going to work in international development uh, for my whole entire life. Um, I did a stint in the Peace Corps um, in Senegal where it is a lot warmer than Mongolia where you served, Peter. Um, and then I was there that I had the epiphany that I actually wanted to be a, a family physician like my father. So I moved back to Baltimore to go to medical school and um and met my met my husband at Johns Hopkins um, and was was pregnant with my second baby right when I was supposed to start my medical training my my residency, so the choices be, were limited between close to my family at Ohio State or close to his family here at the University of Iowa and I just really liked the Department of Family Medicine here at the University of Iowa and so I came and had a baby right before I started my intern year which is a really excellent uh, feed in family planning and um, and I've continued to grow my family here in Iowa City and um, I'm very happy to to be here and thank you. So so much for inviting me to join today. Fabulous, thank you. Uh, Adrian? Thank you, uh, Peter. Um, yeah, my, my migration story is, it basically starts in Mexico. My, I was eight years old, as you mentioned in my introduction, Peter, when my mother uh, moved uh, to Los Angeles 
Um, it wasn't a planned move by any means. We were here, on, we we're supposed to be here for only two weeks. Uh, my grandfather, her, uh, her father was severely ill and she thought we were coming to say our goodbyes. Uh, this was in 95. Um, luckily, he survived that event and lived with us for a few more years. But at that time, my mother was also basically had to decide if we were going to stay here and start anew or go back to Mexico where things were a little bit uh, dangerous due to my father who was causing lots of trouble. So she decided to uproot and start over again. And that's where I uh, continued school with my siblings. We went to the L uh, Los Angeles School District. Uh, went through uh, university there. I unfortunately did not graduate from university. I took a detour uh, and ended up uh, moving to Iowa City to visit. I was here to babysit my nephew at the time. My sister was in medical school here at the Carver College of Medicine, so that's how I came to Iowa. I came to help her take care of her child for a little while while she and her husband were trying to finish that difficult last uh, year. And uh, there was this opportunity at the hospital to help uh, patients and families with interpreting services. And that's really what kept me in Iowa City. My sister graduated in May and left, and I decided that Iowa City was gonna become my new home. So I, in a sense, uh, like my mother, was supposed to be here for just a few weeks and decided that it was in my best interest and my families and everybody involved to uh, start anew. And so over the last 11 years, uh, Iowa City has been my new home with uh, my current wife and uh, two kids, one on the way. Um, so this is, uh, hopefully I'll be bringing some more of my family over to visit me more often. Very good. And, and congratulations on the new baby on, on the way. That's very exciting. Thank you. Uh, I love opening with a question because it reminds us that um, we all do have migration stories. And I'm always curious how one might answer that question. How does one think about migration, uh, if they're from the U.S. or not from the U.S.? And the, the stories that we hear are always personal. And so it's a shared, uh, it's an, it's a shared expression of humanity. Uh, which we need more of. So I would like to begin our conversation, which yes, is about COVID-19, but I would like us to uh, not necessarily go back to 2019 or, or before the pandemic, but I would like to also locate us um, in, in time and in space uh, that is in some ways separate from the pandemic. Um, I'm, I'll, I have sort of a really long question, but I promise you I'll, I'll get back to it and, and make it clear. I'm thinking right now about post-migration stressors, but of course also those stressors, uh, especially new Iowans uh, face that predate migration. But so some examples uh, for those who are not familiar with this term, uh, post-migration stressors, they might include, but they're not limited to things like visa status, family separation, sociocultural status loss, uh, employment concerns, financial distress, uh, loneliness and isolation, language challenges, parental responsibilities. Uh, and these, these concerns are related to uh, overlapping symptoms commonly associated with, for example, PTSD, displacement, as well as notions of and demands for integration 
and, and I hope today we can talk a little bit about integration, a term that um, I, I give uh, great space to problematize, um, at least to complicate. So um, separate from the pandemic, but also related, would you share with us, uh, and I think for this question, I'll begin with, with Lata and, and Adrian. Would you share with us how the physical and mental health needs of moving to Iowa differs for people from different walks of life? So it's important to make distinctions, I'm sure you would all agree, uh, between folks who are refugees, who are immigrants, asylees, those who are documented, those who are undocumented, um, those who have familial and friendship ties to folks here in the area, and those that don't have such ties. Um, so, Lata, maybe I'll begin with you. Will you will you share with us how the physical and mental health needs of moving to Iowa differs uh, for for folks of different statuses? Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. I know Adrian's would be kinder and little bit and still different. But I can, my story also is in some ways connected to, I'd like to share other people's stories, people I work with who are all either immigrants or refugees. And even if they are second or third generation, they still see their families as refugee families or immigrant families. So there are their stories. And I have been with Monsoon, by the way, since 2003 when it was a non I mean, it was a volunteer group so so i'm really um uh, sort of uh, connected deeply to the organization even though at that time as i was a volunteer and only became uh, a full time uh, uh, employee in 2009 so my story especially because um, as a single person in her 30s who's still single uh, i came as an immigrant in a different way. There are few, uh, uh, there are people like me, but a lot of them did find companions, did find partners here, did find, um, you know, a different uh, family life over here. And I didn't have that. I did have though, uh, two of my, my nephew and niece who moved here uh, and went to University of Iowa, by the way, did their undergrad degrees years ago who are now well settled on different uh, sides of the of the coast in the United States with their uh, spouses. But when they came here, I became their second mother, uh, kind of. I, I came from a really tightly knit family. The rest of them were all in India, mostly in Mumbai. So having uh, that kind of distance, really, that displacement was intense. But on the other hand, I was an older person. I had lived away from home for five years in Singapore. So I kind of was already aware of. So mine was a gradual, you know, move. I moved about six hours distance by, by air to another country. And then I moved here, which is about, what is it? About 18 hours distance uh, by air to this country. So I, I have moved kind of slowly, but on the other hand, uh, tragedies that really affected me came suddenly and I was not prepared for them. And I don't, you know, I should have been, I should have known, and I do in, in an intellectual kind of way know it, but loss of family members uh, back home can really hit 
people who have immigrated here, especially if there's close-knit family, close family and then close family members or people we have been connected to really closely in the old country can really affect you because there is um, difficulty going back when they need you or you need them or you want to spend time with them. There might be um, uh, difficulty having that connection that other family members have with someone who is dying. Um, uh, and those are really things that emotionally can be stressors. Of course, um, as an older student and as an adult, you know, as an older adult, I knew what options I had with jobs, with employment. But let me talk about my coworkers who have been affected and as I have by uh, COVID as well, uh, of losing family, close family members in this country and in Iowa and how they have dealt with it. And uh, Omicron and whatever variant is on right now has affected our monsoon staffers as well. Uh, so much so that we keep up updating our COVID policies in the office. We update it because we work with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking, which means we have to have in-person exchanges very often. So th that kind of thing has to be reflected in our professional uh, field in, as well as our personal health. So in that sense, it has been... Um, a challenge with healthcare. Uh, of course, I, when I left India, the time I did before it became um, uh, just around the fall of communism, um, so suddenly socialist medicine in India or kind of socialist medicine had changed. So I was used to healthcare that was affordable. I came to this country and not only is it I have to be in a place where I make sure I have decent health care and thankfully monsoon uh, because of our grants makes arrangements for that. Um, and because we are a feminist organization and concerned about our co-workers as well as the communities we serve, that is really important for us. But uh, in my previous job, or for that matter, people who have worked in other places have a hard time and refugees refugees and of course even the migrants the ones who are like the pacific islanders we we struggle to get them when we join campaigns to get them their medicaid back that is a, a problem so when covid came around and you know people were having job problems or or issues of their hair of, of addressing was it life or livelihood that also came into play. So my story is, is linked in some ways intricately and in some ways, you know, through my professional um, work uh, to the stories of immigrants in Iowa, immigrants, refugees, and, and newer immigrants and refugees. Yeah, thank you, Lata. Uh, Adrian, how about yourself? You know, what are the, physical and mental health needs of, of folks that you've seen that maybe, you know, your own uh, story or those close to you, those that you work with, uh, that you support at the hospital, uh, you know, what have been their physical and mental health needs and, and how have you seen differences 
depending on on one status, how they arrived to the U.S. Sure, sure. And, 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 you know, I love this question, Peter, because I feel like the, que the question itself could be a whole uh, presentation in and of its own in a whole session, just because, uh, you know, uh, I, I was lucky enough and I didn't know it at the time as a child that when uh, when I was when I moved here, I was a resident. And thankfully, my grandfather and my uncles had done the necessary work you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s to kind of make sure that it was easier for my mom and ourselves to have that migrate or immigrate immigration status. Um, I worked, I went to school with kids that didn't find out that they were uh, undocumented until it was time to apply for colleges. And you, you know, you could imagine the, the trauma that that can bring on a, on a person or, or a young adult as they're finding out that they want to pursue higher education and now uh, have all these new obstacles in front of them and what, the cre the, what that can create. But um, going back to the people that I, I, get, I really have a close relationship with, and those are my patients and families. And I think that um, what differs from somebody that, that is here uh, with a different status, and the majority of my, uh, my patients are, are for sure immigrants, whether they're documented or undocumented, they deal with different obstacles when it comes to, re, you know, trying to receive healthcare for serious illnesses or chronic illnesses. Um, and again, un un unrelated to COVID, just separate from that, uh, is uh, a patient that comes and, and has a serious illness and is undocumented, has the burden of, uh, are they going to receive the treatment that they need? And how is that going to happen? And how is that going to look? Um, it, it wasn't very, it wasn't terribly uncommon to have to let, let uh, patients know that there wasn't a necessarily an option for them. And so now they're left stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do I go back or try to go back to my home country where, like Lata was mentioning, maybe has a different healthcare system that could hopefully uh, provide the access that they need? Uh, but these are people that have been removed from that system for a long time. And so it's not, it's not easy for them to just pick up and, and go back to, to that. And who knows if they'll have that treatment available. Um, another stressor that they have to deal with is, uh, and, and again, if they are documented, then hopefully they have a little bit more wiggle room to get what they need uh, in, a timely, in a timely manner. But the undocumented population in terms of healthcare needs is really the one that that is is suffering uh, in a sense because they we have to uh, work that much harder and fill out that much more paperwork and put them through so many more hoops to try to get them life saving treatments um, for for various illnesses and so that that can create such a a, a trauma again you you know you mentioned PTSD I mean these a lot of these patient uh, families left traumatic situations and now they're dealing with a disease that they don't have control over and that has limited resources available for them. Um, another thing that I get to work with a lot are, are again, young children that were that migrated here or were sent here uh, from, with, um, without family from, from families back home to try to connect them to an uncle or a cousin or something. And a lot of them are, the main reason that they are coming are because they have a chronic disease or a, a, a congenital disease or a syndrome that they just can't get the care that they need. I'm thinking, for example, uh, kids that come with heart diseases that need surgery. And if they don't get that surgery, we know statistically their lifespan is going to be that much shorter 
whether they even reach their young adulthood or even younger than that. And so we have families that, that have to deal with that separation. And then like Lata mentioned, something happens back home, they're, they're trying to provide for their families here as at the same time providing for their families back home. So when you have a child that gets hospitalized for weeks or months on end, and they re, you know, the parent has to be here with them for a lot of that time, the question is always asked, uh, I've had a couple of families say, uh, can I go home and, and you know, continue working and, and then come back? They're almost asking it in a timid way because they're, they're almost afraid or ashamed that they have to ask that because they feel that the team is going to think that they don't, they don't care about their child. What do you mean do you, you want to go back home without really understanding? And that's a lot of the work that we do is trying to provide culturally responsive care, is letting our providers know the different situations that these families are dealing with and why they're asking such questions so that we don't question them. What do you mean you want to go back home and not be here with your child? But our question turns to how can we support you? And of course you can do that. We're here to take care of your child. You, we'll give you a number to call Adrian's office so that we can help communicate and report and all of that. But we wanna, we wanna try to break down some of those barriers and stressors that they're already uh, dealing with. Um, and, and another stressor that these families have that others might not, um, again, including my, I include myself in that situation because I was lucky enough that my family was able to take the steps uh, to get us documented status early on. But um, they, they don't have this, they, they're afraid to acquire or apply for services that they might be eligible for, mm -hmm. but can get them in trouble later on with their immigration statuses. And what I mean by that is, if they have, if, if a parent is here and they had a, uh, they came here undocumented and are here undocumented and are working with immigration lawyers to get that, you know, to document the status, and they have children here that are documented and are sick, they uh, could uh, sometimes qualify for very useful services through different organizations, through the states or grants or what have you, but they're afraid to do that because they uh it could impact their immigration status uh mm -hmm. for the parents you know it could it could be kind of a thing on the record that they don't want to to mess with and that changed dramatically unfortunately after 2018 or six yes 18 uh with the previous uh presidency but um you know lawyers were telling uh parents and 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 families in general uh, don't don't just sign off on anything. And what I mean is, we have grants from organizations that are obviously totally uh, free to these families to help them with meals, to help them with expenses, to do those sort of things. And they are not always accepting them until we can kind of, with social workers involved and everything, try to guide them so that they know their rights and they know what they can and can do. Because uh, another thing that goes back to the culturally responsive care. We might, a lot of times we feel that we're, we tell them this won't affect your, your credit, your, your credit history or your credit record, which is in our mind kind of what they're worried about. But it's important for them to understand that the credit is probably the least of their concerns. They're worried about what that's going to mean going forward for their immigration status, because once they apply for that and, and, and can hopefully move on to the next step, they're likely going to be asked to go back to their home country for a determined amount of time. And who knows what that looks like for them? And they have children that require 24/7 care, or that require, you know, hospitalizations every so often for chemotherapies and things like that. And so they don't—they can't necessarily just move back and forth that easily. So undocumented families, the ones that I've worked with, 
have to deal with uh, all of these moving parts, you know, these, these different stressors that when they go home, not only are they afraid of what's happening to their child's health, but they're also in a sense risking their livelihood every time they come to the hospital or to the clinic. Any of these parents gets uh, stopped on the road for a broken he uh, headlight or for any reason, that could also impact them in a very different way than it would impact me. If I get stopped by the cops coming to work, for whatever reason, I'm going to get a ticket, I'm going to get some sort of notice, they might be detained and they might not make it to their child's appointment. So when I have mothers crying and begging their providers for letters saying, can you just write a letter explaining why I'm driving, why I'm on the road, families that have moved closer to the hospital, pri primarily to get the care that their child needs and not risk that long travel from Muscatine, from Waterloo, from Sioux City, uh, those are things that uh, other folks, uh, may, maybe many of us on this call, don't have to necessarily ever worry about. And so those are just a, a few of the things that I've noticed in the time I've been here, Peter, is some of these things that are just additional to the stress already of the disease that they're trying to manage and the disease that they're dealing with um, is everything else that compounds on top of that. Yeah, thank Thank you, Adrian. I, you, I mean, you covered so much. I mean, the precarity of individuals, depending on their immigration status, it, it, it matters so much. And if, if one isn't aware of those things, there's so much that can be missed. And, and the, the possibility of doing harm while trying to do good um, is there. Uh, and the culturally responsive care, uh, Wow, yes, you're, you're so very right. And it, you've demonstrated very clearly the, uh, the burden of responsibility also when it comes to uh, working with, with a you know, variety of um, immigration statuses. Uh, it's so crucial. Alyssa, I wonder if I might turn to you next and uh, if you could tell us in your mental health practice how uh, or what you're seeing with, with clients in the way of post-migration stressors, uh, physical and, and mental health needs that, that are, are tied to their very lives as you know, people who have you know, recently or newly come to our state. Yeah, a, a lot of the work that I do ends up bringing in um, intergenerational components. So one of the things that we see a lot, whatever someone's um, immigration status is or how the first generation of their of their family arrived, is that um, the there's a an increasingly impactful um, struggle across generations as each new generation tries to figure out how to pull together who came before them and how to integrate those pieces into their own lives and the world that they're living in in the US. And so I often get connected um, early on with uh, young people who are trying to manage um, their own, uh, the adults in their homes and the fact that that doesn't match what's happening to them at school on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, the, what's really complicated about that is that because people in one household can have so many different statuses, um, and so that can cause a lot of trepidation and a lot of fear about even getting engaged with any kind of a system and mental health 
tends to be a space where people worry that that like simply admitting that they're receiving support from a mental health professional would be reason enough to be deported or to have their status revoked. So often there's a lot of education around um, their safety. One of the reasons that I run my own agency is because it allows me to be very flexible in how I engage with people. So I can go to people's homes. I can transport people if they aren't able to get to me. And I can honestly say there is no other system that is involved in this process. So there's, there's a, a level of security and safety that I can provide by saying no one else is privy to this information, just me. Um, and, and that has helped a lot. It helps to have a space where people feel like um, other systems aren't looking at them, whatever their reasons are for that. There is a lot of fear. I do think um, when, when mental health comes into the picture, there are so many different layers to that. A lot of times um, mental health providers, and I think even in just general rhetoric, we talk a lot about, about those pre-migration stressors or the, or the displacement stressor, stressors that people go through. Um, and that can often be overly focused upon. I, I almost never have someone come into my office for support who is saying, I want to talk about what happened before. We're really looking at how to manage what's happening in their lives now and, and trying to figure out um, where maybe some disconnects are or where, where there's miscommunication or misinformation um, and addressing feelings of like fear and um, uncertainty and sadness um, and failure. Those are really common emotions that we're working with for, um, with folks. And so I think for me, it's very much about mental health and living in Iowa, living in the United States, whether it's new or long-term. So I, I wanna also emphasize that in mental health, I, I don't often get people referred like in their first six months because people are getting oriented, whatever that looks like, however they came in. But the longer people are here, often the more mental health needs arise. And so uh, like communities that are well-established like uh, Vietnamese, Vietnamese community in Iowa or Bosnian community in Iowa, um, you know, in recent years, there's been an uptick in the number of folks in those communities who've been in, in Iowa for many, many years, um, some for many decades where they're finding that there are things that are suddenly becoming too heavy, or there's been a shift in the household, like children moving out, um, but not necessarily meeting the expectations of the parents in terms of what that looks like. What's it like to have children move out that have been raised in the US? Um, and so, so all the way across um, the family, all the way across the lifespan, these are, these are stressors that pop up. Um, all the ones that Lada and Adrian mentioned, and um, that mental health is, is best addressed in terms of having that individual or that family come in, talk about where they are, what it is that they're dealing with, and then really using those pieces to direct um, care and support and um, building different ways of, you know, thinking about what it's like to live in the U.S. and how can we address it, whether it's through systems or whether it's through, you know, direct uh, mental health intervention. Um, it's really about what they need and what they're open to in that space. Yeah, thank you so much, Alyssa. And you're so very right that there's a kind of um, a double bind in a way where there's, yes, there's what happened before. There's also what's happening now in a new country, in a new culture, in a new language, in new systems. 
Um, there's so much happening. And as we all know, sometimes we do need to make decisions in our lives rather quickly. And we need to make decisions on behalf of others. And how does one do that when there is a lack of familiarity? Um, you know, does one have close family, friends, or, or not? Um, work associates who can help uh, help navigate these many different avenues. I want to um, I want to now layer in the the, the pandemic COVID nineteen. Uh, Eric, Dr. Hayward, uh, what in what ways have you seen the pandemic exacerbating all of these concerns that we've been talking about? Absolutely, uh, it has. I, just just broadly speaking, I think the, the pandemic has exacerbated almost every every th single thing that we have talked about thus far. I I want to build a little bit on what Alyssa said. I I work a lot with uh, with some of the newer Congolese uh, and Sudanese uh, refugees and secondary refugees, people who've been resettled elsewhere who come to Iowa City. Um, so and I, I see some folks on on the call who may be um, who more knowledgeable about those communities even than even than I am. But I, I do get the the wonderful experience of having um to 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 interact closely with people at multiple different stages of their early migration stories themselves and one of the things that i've that i've seen um exacerbated is the sort of asymmetry of integration between parents and children um as community activities are are curtailed for adults children are still going to school and still becoming uh, and becoming more integrated but because it is much harder to travel places in groups people are having kind of isolated experiences apart from members of their family, there's kind of a growing detachment of um, of children as they sort of fall into peer groups and and become more more um, more more proficient at English. I, I see a lot of parents being left behind and uh, and watching their children have even I mean, these are even some very positive experiences, but not being able to share those experiences with them because of I know limitations in in just human movement um, from um, from the from the the pandemic and our some of our our constraints. Um, one one additional um, post-migration stressor I'd, I'd, I'd want to mention is um, I see a primarily legal, documented, and insured population in my hospital outpatient clinic. I have a lot. I don't struggle too much with the uninsured because, frankly, they just don't end up in an outpatient clinic as much. Um, we have um, we have people that are employed um, in in a lot of uh, a lot of the local factories, a lot of local meatpacking uh, places, and the, the stressors that come along with jobs like that. You are, I'm sure you're all familiar. Are, are are immense, um, inflexible uh, work hours, difficult shifts, difficulty with childcare, and um, the inaccessibility of childcare is, is hard on all of us working parents, um, but but most especially people working weird shifts and physically demanding and exhausting jobs and. Um, not really even knowing their rights um, within those workplaces sometimes to um, to to have have protection and have a have a safe place to work. The um, I, I will say that um, because some of those large employers did um, did did not do a bad job of, of vaccinating their patients. That's one way um, that the, that some of our large employers have in some ways maybe benefited the community by uh, by by uh, maybe raising vaccine rates where they might not have been as high. But I expect we'll talk more about that later. But uh, but. The the, uh, but the, but the, the workplace part of the of the stressors is 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 really important to keep in mind as people have 
very little flexibility to choose a job that is um, intellectually fulfilling for many people who've been um, who've been in in more professional roles in the past. The frustration of working as a as a as a janitor um, or as a as a meat cutter on the Tyson line. These types of things is 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 this is really soul crushing for a lot of people who have um, who have a, a different experience or a different expectation for how they they and their brains and their bodies were going to spend their their lives. And I just wanted to touch on that as well. Yeah, uh, I, I do want to say something, Peter, because this is a conversation. We don't want to wait for questions. Yeah, because yep. I do want, I know we are talking about post-migration stressors. As someone who works at Monsoon and who is also a history buff and understands, and we have, when we work with victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, we look at individual histories and community histories. So it's really important for us to know what oppressions people came from, what oppressions were perpetrated by their communities or themselves before they came here. So even if um, communities come here and the stresses start after migration, they actually have them as part of the whole, you know, colonialism and uh, imperialism uh, inheritance, so to speak, for our communities. And those are things that actually they carry on their bodies, not just, you know, like, uh, uh, for example, wartime rape, but even language and the, the um, requirement over here so that uh, of, oh, you need to know our rules, you need to know your rights, you need to know our laws. And I always ask, how, how much do you know about it? And these of native people who are Americans over here. And, you know, people are startled. So we have uh, I know we have um, our attendees for this webinar who really need to be also conscious and as foreign relations, what does it mean in countries where we come from? We don't just exist as immigrants here. We have had histories, we have, we have communities who continue to live the way we do. Uh, you know, I've had people also talking about how COVID spread because a lot of our communities live in, in um, together in extended families in external. And it's not just because we can't afford to have our own home. That's the culture we've come from where it has been not only accepted, but expected that you live with in a, in a joint family, in an extended family. So if people don't understand those cultures, you're going to look at it from your lens over here. And if you're white and privileged, that becomes a problem when you start to demand people need to learn over here you know, people need to change or my heart breaks because I see this because we have better, uh, you know, better life than they do. Because how do you value life or the enjoyment of life? So these are things that are really important, not just post-migration. I would like people to understand the histories of where they come, where people come from, really deeply uh, histories. And the U.S., and American involvement, neo-colonialism in those spaces, how does that play out in the lives of the people who come here? So we don't have leadership that says, you know, 
they are all rapists or though that's shitol countries we don't we want that sort of mindset is not just leadership it is a lot of people who think that way you know podcasts where someone says oh i thought it was the planet of the apes because they were all black people over there so if you start to think in those terms it's very hard to move away from it unless you make a real strong effort to do that Thank you, Lana. I, I, I appreciate how critically minded you are and how to the point you get. I talk with my students about this all the time, right? The number of things that folks need to unlearn and relearn about their own histories, uh, about present, present circumstances, leadership, as, as you mentioned. Um, yes, we, we, if we are all in this together, if we if we do want to recognize each other's humanity in genuine terms, then you're right. There's a lot that we need to do. We need to learn. We need to really listen. Um, I, I could not agree with you more. In terms of the, the pandemic, um, could we touch for a moment on, um, for example, access to reliable information in languages other than English um, about how to prevent uh, exposure to and spreading of the coronavirus, uh, about staying safe, uh, about protecting others. Um, and, and I also want to touch a bit on misinformation, uh, the spreading of misinformation in, in I mean, how many different communities, right, uh, about vaccine safety and efficacy uh, and, and the ways in which this hesitancy has resulted in mistrust in public officials. Uh, it's, it's no secret that how one views uh, those in power, public official, those, um, you know, uh, those in government, but also healthcare professionals uh, may be seen very differently. So could we talk a little bit about, uh, maybe uh, Aaron and Alyssa, I can turn to you first, uh, about, you know, access to information about how to, how to prevent uh, exposure to and spreading as well as misinformation. So I uh, I will speak as my uh, from my from my role as a member of the Congolese Health Partnership um, Advisory Board here in Iowa City, and that was one of our one of our big projects from from the get go. Actually, was to make sure that all of that reliable language was available in the. Um, all of that reliable information was available in the languages that that are spoken in the Congolese community here. And I'd be curious if there are Congolese members of the Congolese community on the call to hear if that information actually did uh, reach out into the community very well. Um, so making sure that we had, um, uh, you know, vaccine information when that became available. But initially, um, you know, talking about how an airborne infection, although initially we thought we're thinking droplet uh, infection, um, might be spread uh, in the community and trying to make that avail as available through through YouTube videos and Facebook live chats with uh, with with experts, um, I think this is another area where it just really highlights how as each, you know, if you know one immigrant, you know one immigrant, um, you know one refugee, you know one refugee, we're all individuals, you can make 
Um, we have a wealth of really great information on, on, infectious, on infectious diseases and vaccines available in English, but that does not mean that English speakers are using and accessing that information. So uh, my um, one thing we talked a lot about at the beginning um, it within, CH, with the, it, within the Congolese Health Partnership was that people continue to get most of their information from um, news sources coming from their home countries. Um, and, and so there's not, uh, because it's, uh, that's what I remember when I've lived abroad, I've looked at American news. I haven't, uh, <laughs> haven't really worked very hard to get local news where I live. So I think it's, um, that's an, just another area where, where you kind of, your 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 you've got your, gla your glasses, your goggles on to, you know, you kind of access the information that is the easiest, um, easiest information for you to digest. Um, so it, this became very clear when we had um, different vaccines being used in different countries. So a lot of people came to us with concerns about how the AstraZeneca vaccine um, was, was causing certain side effects. And so trying to kind of thread a careful needle between how the, we don't have the AstraZeneca vaccine, but even if we did, we would still use it. Um, it was kind of a, it, it required some really long, careful conversations, a lot of listening to concerns, many of the same. I get the exact same, I don't want to be vaccinated arguments from, uh, from my Congolese patients as I do from my American patients who also don't want to be vaccinated. So, um, so information availability is certainly one thing that's important that I, I, that I and some colleagues have worked very hard on over the past two years. Um, an individual's openness to receive that information can be, can be a different story about that. And, and I, I just love to just highlight how how if anti-vaxxers in the immigrant community and anti-vaxxers in the in the American community could just you know connect on that, I think we would you know <laughs> if they've got so much in common you know so um, so I don't while I don't agree with that perspective, I do think it, it could be a uniting point you know that is a joke, um, not a funny one, but but the uh, anti-vax arguments are pretty much the same the world over. I, I agree with that. I think my experience has been that it's very, um, very individual and there are components of both community perspective and um, what it looks like in terms of word of mouth. So I know since COVID hit um, back in March of 2020, a lot of the work that I've done has been with folks that I have established relationships with, whether it's interpreters who have worked with me or families that I've known over the years or even current clients where we have these conversations and they often will bring um, this, the questions that they're hearing in their community. And they'll talk to me about some of those things and I can tell them what I know and what I don't and I can you know, direct them to different resources. One of the gifts of, of this being a worldwide need is that we can access all kinds of different media sources um, through the internet. And so there have been lots of ways, even if Iowa didn't have a specific language or didn't have specific information, we could find it um, from other countries or from countries that maybe people felt more comfortable with. So that would be part of a conversation a lot of the time as well. Um, and that then people take that information back to their communities. They are having those conversations. And then often they're bringing more questions back, more things that are coming up. The biggest concerns that I have seen from people is I often work with, I tend to get referred folks who um, have what appear to be like unsolvable um, physical or mental health needs. And so I tend to get people who've already been through the system and have not had a lot of success and have not been able to build relationships with practitioners that feel safe and well. Um, and so 
there is often a high level of distrust just in general because they haven't had people who they feel like have been able to see them where they are. And they're not sure if going in for a vaccine or going in for a test, um, if it would be done in their best interest. And so a lot of times there's we have conversations around how do we connect you with someone where you feel like you can build that rapport? How do we make sure that um, we're doing like warm handoffs to a clinic uh, that I've worked with that I know is trustworthy um, so that they can get the information and the care and the vaccinations if they're open to it that they need um, without feeling like they're being uh, coerced or judged or ignored in some of the ways that they've experienced in the past. We have, I want to add quickly, so at Monsoon, we've had, you know, support for getting uh, information about the vaccination and, and uh, safety guidelines out, but uh, our approach has not been, here's information about COVID and here's, you know, how it's all safe and great because uh, people already come with information that they have learned through social media one of the big problems with, uh, you know, the internet has been all this, these fake, this fake news that spreads pretty easily from community in within communities and community to community. So we've looked at what are your health issues. So community listening sessions on health issues has been actually very helpful to us because people are interested in talking about their health in general and other and not feeling like you're going to, as uh, Alyssa said, coerce them or force them into getting vaccinated when they are pushing back. But they're eager to talk about issues of their health, their family members' health. So that has been a really good um, uh, method for us to reach communities. I will tell you something personally what I do with victims I work with where I have developed a really good relationship as Alyssa has done with her patients. I uh, once, uh, and there have been some of them who have, you know, in the initial stages refused to be vaccinated. And I tell them, well, you can refuse to get vaccinated. I cannot serve you in person. I can only do it online or by phone. And that scares the hell out of them. And then they're like, okay, I'll get vaccinated, you know, if that's what it takes, because I've already built this relationship. They've seen me do the advocacy that they actually appreciate and need continuing for a while. So they have, I've had actually three of my clients get vaccinated and their family members because they were afraid that they would lose services that were not in person. So that's just been a tactic not the tactic I would advise people to use, but you know, it depends on how much someone cares about you and the, the, um, the work you do for them, for them to say, okay, this is a good quid pro quo that is actually beneficial. So it takes a while. But on the other hand, you know, um, because of social media, because of all this information, what may have happened if the, if COVID had happened, say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it would have been a different scenario. We would have all had a lot more people willing to take to be vaccinated, I'm sure. Um, but now, you know, that information is out there and we're not, we can, it's going to be a struggle to get people to change their mind, regardless of what we want to, uh, what we try to influence them to do.
If Peter, if I could, thank you a lot. If I can add just a couple of things to that too. Um, going back to the language access and, and, and information in their language, that's, I mean, that's one component like Dr. Hayward was saying is the information is out there in English and we still have people that refuse it. Uh, that's one thing that also over the last two years uh, through our, our office, our translating team, I can, I can think of how many documents we translated as they were coming out with new information into at least four to five languages, including Arabic and French, Swahili and Mandarin were the top and in Spanish, the top five. Um, it, with the idea that like, if they have this information in, in their language, it's gonna just you know improve uh, outcomes. And it was more than that, it was connecting with the patients and really the patients that were coming to clinics and asking their doctors about it, uh, for the most part, were very uh, agreeable to getting it. I, I know for me, like patients would ask me, and like Lada was saying, depending on the rapport that you have with the patient, I've worked with patients that knew me when I was uh, young and single, and now I've got a couple of kids and they know about my kids and stuff like that. And they say, Adrian, have you been vaccinated? And they ask it almost expecting me to say like, no, 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 why would I do that? And I tell them, yeah, of course I was vaccinated. I, I was in the trial actually here in the University of Pfizer. I was one of the first people to get vaccinated and you were willing to do that and weren't you afraid and i just honestly have that conversation with them and say no i mean i trust you know the science i trust the, that this is not an investigate i mean it's investigative at that point for sure but it's not like they're trying something they've never done before in that sense and i'll tell i i, I tell them as well if i had been asked about my kids participating in in the in the pediatric study i would have definitely considered it as well because i I know that it's in their best interest, and that I, I'm, I'm not. I don't think that necessarily myself having that conversation changed their opinion on it, but it sh I think it surely influenced them. And now, when the doctor then tells them, "Yes, we recommend it too," then they're getting it, you know, from both sides and are really more willing to to do that and and avoid listening to that misinformation that they're coming in with. And, and it comes from all sources, social media, they're, the news organizations that they're watching from their home countries um, uh, with the TV channels that they have access to and things like that. So I, I'm, I'm pretty happy that we were able to provide that information, but it's only as useful as the user, you know, really wants to, to what they, what they want to do with it. Yeah, yeah, excellent points, all of you. I, I, wanted, I, I want to give some specific attention to children. Um, if, if only briefly, because I'm conscious of the time we have together, uh, it, it being short, that is. Um, but what do you specifically see in the, with, with children in the way of uh, physical and mental health realities in early 2022? Um, maybe, Alyssa, can I turn to you for, for this one? Sure. I, you know, I think I'm sure we've all read articles and seen some of the discussions about children in general, right? Children and adolescents and the struggles they've had in the US um, and around the world with COVID. Um, what I see in the work that I do is that um, there are some major gaps that are cropping up. And uh, because schools are so overwhelmed, they're not, they're already not meeting the needs of all the kids across the board who've had these gaps, whether it's because they couldn't attend school or um, for like, because their school was closed, for example, in 2020, or because they weren't able, they aren't able to 
go to school consistently because maybe they're quarantining. Um, they're trying to do something even if their school isn't following those rules. So maybe they're missing school. Um, there are huge educational gaps that are coming up. And a lot of the um, uh, like preteen and adolescent young people that I work with in um, across all refugee communities, whatever that status looks like, has been that there's been a real struggle to keep those young people invested in school. It feels very much to them. They they will often describe it as feeling like they're like the school and that community is getting farther and farther away from them. Like like they're having to use almost like binoculars to even see what it what it used to feel like to them before COVID. So there's a real sense of uh, like dislocation and isolation that's coming up. And for some of those young people, that's led to. Um, things like moving into substance use or um, engaging in truancy or um, things like that that then fall under uh, the criminal legal system and has created these almost explosive struggles within households that that weren't there before. Um, so there there have been some really deep wounds, I think, inflicted on young people because access to education, that consistency of school, even if they didn't love it, um, it was something, it was a structure and it was a place where they belonged. And it was a place where um, a lot of young people also will talk about feeling like when they're at home, it doesn't quite fit and that often school and their peers feels a little better to them, especially if, um, if they've spent a number of years in the U.S. already. And so many of them also felt like have also felt like they've developed um, depression and anxiety around not really fitting as well with their family and not being able to get away from that space um, to feel like they can find, right, they're, they're trying to bridge these two major different cultural and social expectation systems. And they often catch themselves feeling like um, nothing matters, suicidal ideation and attempts have absolutely increased in the folks that I see. Um, and just the, the depth of anxiety and depression and what that looks like and um, the, the discomfort that they often have in even saying to someone, particularly in their home, um, I'm not okay, I need, I need something else. But all of that has been just, it's just grown exponentially. And it, even now I've, I've seen a few um, uh, like conversations, read a few articles that have been talking about, well, now that people are, you know, mostly all back in school in the US, this is getting better. What I'm seeing is there's this continued rise. So it isn't actually um, necessarily getting better, it's changing. But I think the more, the more there's this assumption that we're moving back to normal, whatever that was, um, often it gives those young people the feeling that they aren't feeling like it's normal and there must be something wrong with them. And so they're beginning to internalize that um, even more aggressively. Thank you, Alyssa. Yeah. Peter, do you mind if I just mention one thing about that, specifically with kids that are hospitalized again, being in the Please. hospital setting? Mm -hmm. uh, because the whole the whole uh, theme of loneliness and isolation has certainly been a, a huge stressor on on all uh, stat or hospital patients that you know can where a lot of our immigrant communities are very tight knit in terms of that family support, and they're used to being able to visit in in numbers, uh, their patients that are hospitalized. And so when you have a child that is hospitalized for a long time and can't have their classmates come like they used to with signs, with uh, jokes, with whatever have you to hang out while they're in the hospital, that has certainly 
increase that anxiety of being hospitalized, that anxiety of, am I, am I gonna be okay? And, and I'm sure has compounded and added to what Alyssa just talked about, which is the, the depression and the uh, suicidal ideation and things like that. And so I just wanted to briefly take a second to, to comment on that because the patients that I work with in the hospital setting are certainly uh, stressed out already with the process, the, the disease treatment that they're receiving. And then on top of that, not having that support, but of one or maybe both parents when able to. That's such a great point. Yeah, and, and something if, if you know, if we've not uh, been in a hospital lately and had that need, we, we wouldn't think much about, yeah, the folks that come visit you, that give you a, a bright spot in the day and in otherwise, in otherwise difficult circumstances. Yes, the pandemic has, has complicated and exacerbated so many things. Um, and, you know, I don't want to only talk about, you know, the heaviness and the, uh, the, the negative aspects here. Everything we've been discussing thus far, um, you know, these there's real seriousness in all of these issues. Um, but the questions above what we talked about before also belie the fact that there's there's a lot of optimism uh, and, and a lot from which we can and we should all learn about health and wellness. So um, would you? Uh, and I'll, I'll turn. I'll open it up to all four of all four of you. Would you please share with us examples or stories of how refugee and immigrant communities have found resilience and strength during these difficult times? The first thing that comes to mind for me is something that happened to me just a few days ago, and I was so pleased by it. I, I'll, I'll share it with you all. I we have the the privilege um, in our international family medicine clinic um, of uh, for the last six or seven months we've been taking in brand new uh, brand new arrivals for their refugee wellness visits, and and I met three teenagers this week who. Um, who were very nervous about coming to their first doctor visit in the US. And then halfway through the visit, one of them asked me, it's like, how do I get a sports physical? How do I get a sports physical? And, and, and they just wanted to play soccer at City High. And it was just, I was just so pleased. And I, I just love soccer. And I think that soccer is the way forward for all of us. <laughs> one thing we didn't comment on was, um, I mean, when we talk about uh, the mental health issues, I complete, I agree completely with Adrian and Alyssa and everything they've said. And, and, I, and I really wanna push uh, metabolic health from a physical health perspective, I think is something that is, is huge for American kids and it's, and it's huge for our immigrant kids as well. And um, however we can um, integrate the joy of physical activity and the, and the, the joy of, of eating communally, you know, healthy, nutritious foods. I, I think our immigrants do that, our immigrant communities in, on a whole do that often much better than Americans do. And I, I'd love to celebrate those aspects of, of, our, of our neighbors' cultures. Yeah. I, I want, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Lata, go ahead, please. Uh, I want to um, address what Erin said, because one of the issues of, I mean, food, especially in immigrant communities, especially if they're really focused on culture and festivals, that has become a lot more in home because of because a lot of immigrants refugees were also copying what is seen as fast food in the United States and eating unhealthy food. 
So, and it was easy enough because people were working two jobs, three jobs, and it was much easier to feed your kids at McDonald's or Burger King or whatever other places there are. Uh, COVID, I have discovered with the uh, people I, I serve, I work with, um, uh, that they have ended up staying home someone has quit their job in a meatpacking plant, is doing, is cooking at home. Children have been involved with that cooking because they were also doing remote learning. So that was, and celebrating festivals that kids would not have paid attention to earlier. So that's kind of, I mean, to assume that we are all uh, without agency, that we're all, you know, down, in the in the dumps because we are uh, facing this um, horrendous illness around the world um, takes uh, away from the sense that we've all tried to survive as well as we can. So that was food for sure and festivals for sure have been communities I've worked with or I'm associated with. Sorry, Adrian. No, that's okay. Uh just to kind of touch on that too, I think that was um, what I've noticed uh, is that the what what has really created community has become that much more important during during this time, and so that has really provided some resilience and strength to look forward to getting back to some of those activities that people were kind of used to. But also, you know, like lots of mentioned just now is a lot of families were stuck at home. And so the kids were doing things that they maybe had never really done before with their parents. Alyssa, you know, we, we talked about earlier about some of that separation because of that exact thing. But there was also that positivity of engaging in the kitchen, engaging with their parents. Uh, I had a lot of parents that were telling me that they were uh, learning more and more English from their kids because they were more willing to talk to them in Spanish and vice versa. And so that was, uh, those were positive things for them to really uh, continue moving forward. And another thing that I, some families and patients share with me too, is that the pandemic in and of itself created a stronger bond with their families uh, back home because of uh, travel restrictions and other, other issues. They found themselves connecting in with, and their, and their kids with their grandparents and uncles and stuff. They were connecting more uh, virtually, the ones that had the means to do that. And so that just created, uh, again, more, more optimism and more positive things to look forward to uh, during this, I mean, terrible, terrible human experience, uh, human experience that we are all sharing uh, with a global pandemic. So I think, I think even more than ever before, people and communities are realizing that we're only better and stronger when we are, you know, uh, joining in, uh, arm to arm with our communities, whether that's a shared community or, or not. It's it's really, we, we can only move forward if we're all uh, in it together, like we, we say we are and we should be. I couldn't agree more, Adrian. You, you put that so well. Yeah, Alyssa? I, a couple of things that come to mind for me are, um, I've had a lot of people talk about how they experienced like that deep, true loneliness for the first time ever. And they had to figure out how to engage with that. Um, something that in the past had even been very frightening to them because a lot of a lot of communities just moving to the US, loneliness is a really new concept. Um, and, and the ways that, that 
U.S. born folks just kind of assume it's a part of life is is very culturally specific. That that's not true in all spaces. And so, a lot of people have talked to me about how they had fear of that, and they would kind of fill their days in ways that tried to help them avoid that as much as possible. And that during the pandemic, in particular at the beginning, um, that was such a heavy experience, but it also offered them the opportunity to build skill sets around that. And they're no longer as afraid of that. And it's, it's built confidence in ways that they did not even realize that they were looking for. And so that's a really interesting um, adaptation, I think. The other one that I have been so excited about has been um, the access to people for mental health support through online groups. Um, we know that in a lot of communities, mental health support works better as a group. It doesn't work as well one-on-one. -on -one. And um, all kinds of things have come up. The I After the George Floyd murder in 2020, um, which you know is happening at that same time as COVID, um, there were a number of women who um, came from African nations who are, um, brown and black folks who have young men who are being raised in the United States who were trying to understand um, the safety of their sons and their sons were because everyone was kind of at home and they were engaging in different ways they started having conversations around that and then I happened to know some of those households who reached out to me and we started having group conversations where moms and sons are present and we're talking about this online how do you engage in this way how do you get the parent and the child to be able to understand the really different ways that each of them is processing these fears and these, these social constructs that maybe parents are less familiar with or, or are, are interpreting in different ways. So the those things have been just incredible, just being able to have that sense of community, being able to access folks who couldn't normally get to a group because of their work schedules because they work from 5 a.m. to you know 7 p.m. with their transportation you know we can have early groups and they can get access to other community members in that way and get mental health support while also still you know taking care of their children and still getting to work those are the two big things that for me have really stood out thank you Alyssa and thank all of you those are those are great examples of resilience and community strength um, I, you know, I've got, uh, boy, if we only had more time, right? Um, I, we, we've turned, we've come to the time, uh, you know, we'll come to question and answer. I'm going to pose one more question to our panelists. And in the very quickest of terms, I'll ask each of you as folks are, are thinking about their own questions and they add them to the chat box. Um, I want you each to briefly share your thoughts on this. What in terms of health and wellness in the most practical sense, should we all be thinking about and doing as forward-thinking people and community-engaged Iowans? Okay. Uh, I'm going to, can I start? You I'll can, tell you quickly. Okay, well, hold on. Let me, let me uh, turn to the, I'm gonna turn the, to the, the audience real quick and get them going. I'll go directly to you. Okay, how about that? <laughs> sure, of course. Okay. Um, okay, so for the Q&A folks, please uh, submit your questions via the chat function at the bottom of your viewing screen. Feel free to turn on your video function, uh, but keep yourself muted. While we're waiting for questions to come in, ICFRC wants to thank its members and donors for their support to provide these free educational programs to our community. If you would like to join ICFRC, 
or make a gift to support our project on refugees and immigrants in Iowa, please go to icfrc.org. Okay, so add those questions into the chat box there. Uh, Lada, I'll turn to you. Um, in the briefest sense, uh, Very brief of practical things, uh, what we can be doing now uh, looking forward. Uh, one of the things that people can do, please start campaigns for childcare allowance for young mothers. I think that is so important because we've lost that in, in all this uh, discussion about, because when, when you want more, more, more people in the workforce, when you want young moms or mothers in the workforce, they need to have that support and childcare child allowance Nobody is interested in providing, not big companies, not small companies. And so I would urge everybody to look into that and start a campaign. Thank you, Lata. Thank you. I'm still thinking, so go ahead, Dr. Hayward. And <laughs> I was just gonna say, go outside and take a walk and walk in the parks and notice all the people around you and smile at them if you can. And it's healthy for you and it's healthy for everyone else. And it's quick and easy and you can do it today. <laughs> Simple I, and powerful, I like. You know, that's what I went to medical school for, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say connection. Um, and I think particularly working with uh, or engaging with um, refugee and immigrant communities, being present, showing up, um, giving of your time, though that relational aspect is so key, I think for everyone involved, not just for someone you might see as a client or a patient. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's a great, those are all great points. I, I would say the same thing is just, uh, even within the limits that we have or restrictions to just get out in the community more. That's one thing that with my young kids, uh, they're, they're toddlers, three and two. Um, we try to take advantage of going out to the park, to the trails, when uh, local gyms have events uh, for kids or um, specific cultural events, like the, in, in my community, the Latino uh, festival that happens every fall in Iowa City, uh, getting out and just uh, learning, continuing to learn about your neighbors uh, so that you can have better understanding of their struggles and their lives and, and ultimately realize that uh, we're not so different. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I want to add something to what the, my three co-panelists said is when you do that, please make sure that if you are, are reaching out that you acknowledge any kind of uh, response you get. I have had people who contacted me because, you know, I'm supposed to be the so-called interpreter, immigrant um, uh, knowledge keeper, that kind of thing. I never got to thank you back after I spent so much time providing that information, not even a thank you for Iowa nice that was absolutely not nice. So I hope when you reach out to people to make connections that you, it's a quid pro quo it's a good exchange and it is not just uh, something that you want for yourself and then you dump uh, the, the resource that you have reached out to. Thank you, Laka. Yeah, one can't say please and thank you enough, right? Exactly, uh, yes. <laughs> and, and then, you know, not just please and thank you, here's something in exchange. You know, I've had some great allies 
and I will tell you, uh, great white allies, and then they've been awful people. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag out there. Yeah, uh, folks in the in the in the audience, uh, questions? Yes, Siri. Is she is she muted or is the person not she he the person muted? Yes, uh, I don't know if we need to unmute everybody, uh, Catherine, if that's uh, possible. Given that we only have a, a few minutes left, or just uh, Siri or Siri, can you ask your question in into the chat box? Can you write it there? I can talk very. You muted now. <laughs> I was so, too. Siri, okay, go for it. Yeah, sorry about that. My texting skills are pretty, they're not like kids who grow up over here. They text very fast and <laughs> drive at the same time. <laughs> sure, so, ask away, ask away. So my, my question is kind of uh, going to uh, to Erin. So I wanted to ask more about, you know, especially when you touch about the separation or the cultural erosion between, you know, the, the, the parent point of view of the youth and the youth themselves, you know, there's kind of a deviation over there in between. So my question is, what do you think need to be done? You know, so in a way like, to bring, because it's really, really affecting because there's a one lady for the program we have here, like the safe transportation to ensure that those kids or parents don't have transportation, they go to school. I realized just with the COVID and you have to have like masks and stuff like that. There's a kid, he's not even, he, he views like the mom is dumb or something like, I don't know, sorry to using the word, but the mom told me like, Siri, I don't know how to do with my kids. Like I need somebody to help me, to guide them, to tell them like, hey, you are just 13 years old, you need to go to school. But the mom has to go to Tyson's for work because have, she has other kids and she's single mom, you know? So I don't know what do you think can be done. That's question number one. Number two is about, um, I realized that most when I did this youth uh, engagement, I made them on Zoom, I gave them a test to share something, everybody to share. I realized most of the kids, they're not into Zoom type of thing. And then I double check, I found that most of our kids, like uh, you mentioned, in the future or two years from now, the performance, you're gonna get a little affected because you know, when we had COVID, we moved the way we're gonna study, there were a little bit more, you know, parents more engaging, but we gotta compare our parents, most of them, you know, uh, like some of you already mentioned, they're in a meat plant or they work, the working schedule maybe a little, you know, it's not like they're going to be teaching in the house. <laughs> They'll be like, either someone is just watching TV all the day. So do you think that in the long run will bring a little bit of infect? And how do you think, what can be done in like in that regard? Like just like an advice, because I've already seen it happening. Thanks. Yeah, that is such a good question, and I and I I think teenagers the world over think their parents are idiots, uh, so we have that in common. But I I I think that if there were a little bit, if there were a way to better integrate 
parents and we rely on schools so much to to make kids feel like they're part of a community here and um if there were a way and we talk about this in the congolese health partnership pretty regularly and and, and you I, I you have a congolese name so i i would uh, i would assume that you're from congo is that true um the um i i don't i would I'm, i'd like to pass this question off to Alyssa. but my um <laughs> my my inclination is that if, if if parents were able to have a, a community where they could become kind of experts in their part of America and that that we could share the parent that there would be something that kids could go to their parents for. I think one of the hardest things in all immigrant communities is when kids become the interpreters for their parents, they become the cultural interpreters for their parents. And it's it's such a role reversal of what we of who we think should be the keeper of the wisdom and the experience. And with that role reversal, it it it, it is really challenging for kids to, I think, um, sort of have the expectation, have the same relationship with their parents that the parent expects from them. If, the, if it's hard for kids to go to their parents if their parents don't really really just don't know what's going on in their lives and um so i'm curious what Alyssa would say about that um i i'm i'm not 100 sure i understood your second question actually um and i and i think it's because my headphones weren't working would you mind maybe after Alyssa answers your first question <laughs> could you mind would you mind restating your second question <laughs> Just to add to that first question, so I agree with all that, Erin. I, I, my experience has been that it's really, really important that if, if you're, if you're in an agency that that is working with a child or the adults, that as much as you can, you get the entire family engaged. So you don't have to be a therapist or a social worker or a school counselor to do that. Um, what I have seen be effective is I'll build a relationship with the young person, I'll build a relationship with the parents, and then we will do that as a team. And we will bring other adults that, that the young person in particular trusts, um, because they often are, just like with a lot of kids, it's harder to listen to your parents than to listen to someone else that's an adult that you trust. And so a lot of times um, it's about building a community around almost like a cultural brokering conversation that takes place over time in terms of helping that young person to see what value their parents bring to their lives and to the U.S. and to the community and, and, and helping them to, instead of using the hierarchies that the U.S. tends to have, going back to Alada's discussion of colonization and histories of oppression, right, instead of letting those take over how those young people perceive their own parents or maybe that, that cultural history, allowing them to find ways that for themselves through, usually through like identity work, we would talk about it as in the U.S., um, find ways that they can engage in a respectful manner across both, right? That they don't have to agree with their parents to also value their parents and see the worth in their parents as they are. Um, but that can be difficult. It's really easy for, especially if it's a mainstream agency that's working with them. I see often in schools, the adults in schools will kind of side with the young person and say, you're right, I don't understand why your parents are doing that. Or, oh, that's awful. I'm, I can't believe they're behaving like that. And that tends to create a huge distance that that helps the kid feel justified in, in their rejection of the household. So if, if particularly for those of us in agencies who are working with folks, 
integrating family connection, huge part of it. And then just noticing, you know, our own biases and our own assumptions that are coming up. Um, and the earlier we can do that, the earlier we can support and intervene with young people, the more effective that is over time. It's much, much harder at 16, 17, 18 to engage a young person and be like, your, your family does have value. Let's talk about this. than it is to talk to maybe an eight or nine year old who's just starting to really notice those differences. Okay, I'm sorry to say, Siri, um, we we have run out of time. <laughs> I mean, it's this this is such an important conversation, and I hope that we we all view it as the beginning of many conversations or the continuation of conversations that we have been having. Um, it's 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 so important. We in this conversation, yes, we've talked about COVID nineteen directly, but also life more broadly and the, the complications that that we uh we are now facing and that in particular refugees immigrants uh are, are facing um so i do want to conclude our program i want to give a big thank you to dr aaron hayward to Alyssa uh clayton to adrian silva lada de mello for their wonderful contributions and for sharing their expertise with us today uh aaron adrian um, Lata, uh, I want to give all one of you, uh, I'm honored to virtually present you. <laughs> My light is a little too bright. Can we say this, uh, to present you with ICFRC's highly coveted mug. Ooh, yes. yes. Thank for, you. For coffee, tea, or the beverage of your choice. <laughs> and we will coordinate, uh, delivery details with you very soon. Uh, a couple of special announcements that uh, I want to, to put in, in the chat for, for those of you still here and for the, for the posterity of our recording. Um, let me make sure everyone, there we go. Uh, a couple of special announcements. Uh, I, I do hope that you will be able to take a close look at these. Co College is hosting uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, an amazing writer um, who, who writes about the lived experiences of refugees and uh, in the United States in particular, but uh, globally. And then Refugee Day on the Hill on the 10th of March, uh, a concerted uh, focus uh, for, for supportive and advocacy for refugees in Des Moines on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, finally, I want to tell you that ICFRC's next program is on Tuesday, February 15th at noon via Zoom. The program will feature Ben Delgado from Film Scene who will talk about the university appeal of film with a focus on Latin America. And our next program in our series on refugees and immigrants in Iowa is on March 23rd, and we'll be talking about the pursuit of higher education. So thank you to all of you for joining us today. And we are with that adjourned. <laughs>